And I would like to introduce our preacher this morning. Um, uh, Peter Labar actually preached here um, not that long ago, and most of you know him quite well. Uh, but I want to introduce him especially this morning because this is the first Sunday that Peter is stepping into a new role at this church. He's going to be serving quarter time as our pastoral resident. So um, those of you guys who remember Fumi served for a year as our pastoral resident, well, uh, Peter is stepping into that role uh, this morning. We're really excited to have him on staff. I mean, we're just going from strength to strength, right? I mean, from Fumi to Peter. And uh, uh, just want to point out, some of you guys might not realize, you might say, like, why are there so many college students here? Why does it, why does it seem like there's, is this an varsity meeting or is this a, a church uh, worship service? I mean, just so you know, um, who might not, those of you who might not know the history is, um, Carissa and I moved here after getting married in December 04 to, uh, to start the InterVarsity ministry at Florida State. And then uh, as it sort of just grew and spread onto FAMU and TCC, um, some of the best leaders um, that, that came up um, among them, uh, Michelle Herbst uh, and, uh, and Brian L. Tomey, but also Peter Labar, um, all the Lord was kind of raising them all up at a really similar time so that by the time Carissa and I were ready to leave and go to seminary, uh, Peter and his friends stepped up and took over the InterVarsity ministry, and they continue in that into this day. So sometimes I'll tell the InterVarsity students, um, I'm your InterVarsity grandfather, whether you realize it or not. But uh, um, I just have so much love and respect for Peter, so grateful that he's coming to bring the word. But you're going to start to hear him a little bit more often, too. And in this sort of pastor in training role, you'll see, uh, begin to see him um, function in some other ways in the church as well. So we're excited about that. And uh, hopefully, Peter will actually get ordained uh, sometime in the course of this year as well. So I'm going to say a word of prayer for Peter, uh, if you want to just come to the pulpit, and then uh, he'll bring the word for us this morning. So Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for this dear brother in the faith, for all the ways that you have anointed him and anointed Naomi uh, to bring your word uh, onto campus to disciple people, to lead people to Christ. And we pray that uh, as he brings your word this morning, you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Amen. Amen. Well, um, thank you, Taylor. Uh, just a quick announcement before we start. If you found the gospel reading puzzling, <laughs> uh, getting friends by dishonest means, whatever, um, John preached on that, or John or Taylor, I don't know, one of them, um, preached on that a couple of years ago. You can find it in our sermon archives. So if you're just wondering, what the heck was Jesus saying in the gospel reading, uh, you can go back and listen. This morning, we're going to be doing an overview of the plagues in Exodus 7 through 11. You can turn in your Bibles to page 49, um, but we're going to be moving fast. So uh, get ready to turn pages, even uh, if you even want to try to keep up. Um, so I want to ask the question, what comes to your mind when you think about the plagues? What comes to your mind when you think about the plagues? Is it the power of God? Is it the hardness of Pharaoh's heart? Is it the repeated phrase, let my people go? What comes to mind when you think about the plagues? The plagues are a roller coaster. They are a display of divine satire, and they're a display of God's power. And we will find hope as we see God making a mockery of Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. And yet, this passage is also a warning. 
Because even after seeing the downfall of Pharaoh and his gods, it doesn't make the people of God immune to idolatry, disobedience, and hardness of heart. So, as we look at the ten plagues this morning, we're actually only going to look at nine of them. We're going to see the satiric, the mockery, and the downfall of Pharaoh and his gods. We're going to see Pharaoh's downfall. We're going to see the hope of God's power over evil, and we're going to see the warning to God's people. The downfall, the hope, and the warning in this passage. So let's start by looking at Pharaoh's downfall. In order to understand Pharaoh's downfall, we have to remember the basics of our relationship um, with God, the, the basics of the relationship between God and humanity. Remember that Genesis 1, God creates humans um, to be caretakers of his creation. So God's in control, not us. We're caretakers of his worlds. We're stewards, and any authority or power that we have comes from him. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve essentially said, this is your creation, but I'm going to do what I want with it. And everything gets messed up when we arrogantly defy the creator's intention. And that's exactly what Pharaoh is doing here. Pharaoh is putting himself in control and defying the creator. But we also have to remember the basics of idolatry. And for a moment, I just want you to think about the horrors of kidnapping. What happens in kidnapping? Someone forces themselves into a place of authority in a child's life and leads them away from their true parents. Right? Kidnappers lure kids away with empty promises and bring about them harm. Idols are kidnappers. Idols are enslavers. They lure a people away from a good relationship with God and enslave them with empty promises they can't keep. God hates idols, and he settles for nothing less than their destruction. And here's Pharaoh who's grasping for control and defying the Lord's authority. And Pharaoh is running a system of enslavement, both religiously and literally. Idolatry and slavery go hand in hand. And Pharaoh and his idolatrous system of enslavement are about to get it. So Moses rolls up to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says in Exodus 5.2, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? And God responds with the plagues. <laughs> the Lord's plagues expose Pharaoh's total lack of control, and the idol's complete inability to deliver on their promise. And not only are the plagues of a display of God's power, they also mock the gods of Egypt. So let's, let's see how the plagues do this. Plague 1, Exodus 7, the Nile River turns to blood. The Nile River was believed to be the bloodstream of the god Osiris. You guys see this? Osiris was the god of the underworld. Death and resurrection, the Nile regularly flooded and watered the crops. The cycle of the Nile flooding and receding symbolized the death and resurrection that came through Osiris' blood. The thinking is, if we play, pay a tribute to Osiris, we receive his lifeblood from the Nile. 
And then the Lord comes along and through the staff of Moses goes bippity boppity bloody river, right? <laughs> and the lifeblood of Osiris becomes actual blood and stinks the entire land because all the fish die, right? It's a mockery of Osiris and his lifeblood, and it displays Pharaoh's utter powerlessness. God, at the end, in Exodus 7, to start off that, says, By this you shall know that I'm the Lord. Frogs. Exodus 8. This is the second plague. This one's my favorite. Uh, <laughs> so, Heket was the god of fertility. He was a dude, and he had a frog head, and frogs were thought to be sacred. They represented fertility. And you, I mean, you guys see what's coming? It's as if God's saying, oh yeah, froggy's your fertility god, right? Watch what happens. Watch how fertile frogs can be, right? <laughs> so frogs are everywhere. Frogs are in your ovens, kneading bowls. The frogs are on you. I love that part. Like, you're going to get frogs on you. That's what's going to happen to you. Right? You get a frog, you get a frog, you get a frog. Um, how funny is it, I think, that God wants to put his frogs on people? But here's, here's my favorite. Um, God says, first, that the frogs are going to be in your bedrooms and on your beds. Where does fertility happen? In the house. On your bed. Right? In your bedroom. Where are the frogs? On your bed. Right? So God is shutting down fertility with fertility frogs. Right? <laughs> um, talk about a turnoff. Um, <laughs> the Lord shuts down the fertility God with the fertility God on the bed. And, of course, Pharaoh is totally out of control and begs God, please send the frogs back to the river. And all the frogs don't go back to the river. They die, and they stink yet again. The land smells. Pharaoh is powerless. The Egyptian gods mocked. Gnats, plague three. Up until this point, Pharaoh's magicians have been able to replicate, like we heard. Then gnats, the you know tiny little things you can barely see. Nope, can't do that, <laughs> right? <laughs> they might have been able to do small-scale replications with the frogs, but they can't stop, or they can't replicate the gnats. They're totally stumped, and uh, these... Egyptian, or these tiny little flies that you can barely see has the Egyptian magicians done for. And, and they cause the magicians to admit this is the finger of God. Gnats cause <laughs> Egyptian magicians to admit this is the finger of God. So Egyptian religion and idols mocked Pharaoh again, powerless. So plagues four through eight, we see flies, livestock, boils, hail, locust. For all these, there's a couple of possibilities which Egyptian gods were specifically being mocked. But the point, though, was that you appeased the gods through sacrifice, and they kept the gnats and the flies and the skin disease and the storms and the locust. They kept them all at bay. If you just worshipped these gods and gave them tribute, they kept everything under control. But the God of Israel is completely unraveling this bogus idolatry. And over and over again, these false gods of Egypt can't keep their promises. 
They can't keep any of this stuff at bay. And Pharaoh and the gods, again, are shown to be powerless. The ninth plague, darkness. The sun is central to Egyptian mythology. Egyptians' gods actually, Egyptian idolatry is like a soap opera. If you go through and read like them fighting over different power, and the Egyptian gods actually compete for power over the sun. So imagine the utter humiliation of the gods of Egypt when God shows that he's in control of the sun, not Ra or Horus or Osiris or any of the other gods who were competing for power over the sun. This is, again, utterly humiliating for the Egyptians and for Pharaoh. The gods of Egypt are powerless. Pharaoh is totally out of control. But this isn't just humiliating anymore. The plagues have gone from annoying to terrifying. Three days of darkness. Imagine it. I don't know about you. <laughs> uh, I hate going to bed when it's utterly dark. I become a two-year-old who's scared of the dark again. Um, there's always hope of the morning, though, right? Like, I can just get through this because when I wake up, the sun's going to be out and it's going to be over. But imagine if the hope of the morning is gone. Imagine facing utter darkness for three days while your whole system of religion is crumbling before you. The Egyptians are literally stuck in darkness while the people of God, Israel, have light. And Taylor will pick up on the final plague next week, but let's just stand and marvel at the power of God here. It is in his nature to utterly humili humiliate kidnapping idols and to expose their empty promises. And God opposes the proud Pharaoh and gives grace to the humble Moses. The downfall and the utter humiliation of this arrogant and foolish ruler and this oppressive idolatry should give us hope. I want us to hold on to the hope and see the hope in this passage. Think about just how invincible Pharaoh and the Egyptians seemed to the people of Israel. They had no hope. They're weighed down by the yoke of slavery, and the Lord shows up and makes a mockery of them. In Incarnation, I want you to remember this passage when you are in the thick of real spiritual warfare. I'm not talking about God giving you peace when you're stressed out in the work-family balance. That's that's good. God cares about that. He wants to give you wisdom and strength to face that. And I'm not talking about standing against temptation. You should stand attention. God cares about that against temptation. God cares about that too. He wants to help you stand against temptation. But I'm talking about encountering outright defiance to God. I'm talking about coming against a Pharaoh attitude. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? In those times... As you see this defiance against God and all that he stands for, remember that God has the last word.
God brings down Pharaoh and his pitiful gods that seem so strong at the time. Sometimes it feels like God should have acted yesterday. Sometimes it feels like it gets worse before it gets better. But the Lord will bring down Pharaoh and his system of oppression. Like our psalm says today, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. And we have a role to play, but it really just feels like we're watching God do it. Moses is basically just standing up and saying what God tells him to say, and sometimes not even saying exactly what God tells him to say, as we saw last week. But incarnation just show up in those moments when you're encountering those that defy God. You don't have to feel ready. You don't have to be strong. God says in those moments, Exodus 10-2, you will know that I am the Lord. Sometimes it's when we encounter those who utterly defy God that we feel most assured that God is the Lord. The plagues get more and more intense as the defiance gets stronger and stronger. But God could be writing a story of faithfulness that will be passed on to your grandchildren. There is hope when we encounter those that defy the Lord. But, but... There's also a warning in this passage. While the downfall of Pharaoh and his gods give Israel hope, it also serves as a warning. What's the warning of the plagues? You would think that just after the people of God saw the idols of Egypt mocked and destroyed, that God's people would flee from idol worship. And you would think that God's people would be extra careful to obey the Lord after Pharaoh refused to obey the Lord and suffered the consequences. But no, the chapters in Exodus, these chapters in Exodus become a foreshadowing of the idolatry and the disobedience of God's people. Israel will bring disobedience and idolatry with them out of Egypt. And God will see to it that Israel's idols are destroyed, just as Egypt's were. Disobedience led to the death of Pharaoh, and it leads to the death of the first generation of Israel. The plagues of Egypt, while at times they're comical in their irony, are ultimately sobering. And let us feel the weight of the human condition that's on display in this moment. Humanity almost seems doomed and destined to disobey and defy God. Egypt does. Israel does. We do. We are out of Egypt, but we find ourselves grasping for the idols that we had back there. The ones that were shown to be powerless and can't deliver on their promises. Maybe you once felt like you were on the receiving end of family dysfunction, but now you feel like you're the cause of that dysfunction. Just because we leave the systems of sin doesn't mean the sin leaves us. So friends, how do we respond when we find the sins of Egypt in us? I love the book of Hebrews because it shows us 
how to live out and understand the major themes of the Old Testament. Hebrews is a fire hose, and I'm just going to turn on the fire hose for the mi a minute, and then we'll just put it into a cup of water, right? But here's the fire hose. If we look at the whole book of Hebrews, we see that we need the blood of the Lamb to purify us so that the fullness of God can dwell in us by the Holy Spirit and renew us. We need to be made right with God through our great high priest, Jesus. We need to live into the new covenant that's offered to us. We need to throw off every weight that hinders us. We need to, we need the alive and the active word of God. We need to persevere in our faith. We've left Egypt, but we're not done. Now the idols and the disobedience needs to be rooted out in us. And, and we need the fullness of who Jesus is and what he offers us. When we say yes to Christ, we enter a long wilderness journey. Often, we start our journey with God, like Israel, with the head knowledge that God destroys idols and that pride and disobedience lead to destruction. Then, on our way, all the stuff we saw God defeat, we find right in our own hearts. Pastor Tim Keller, one of the heroes of mine, um, he talks about our life in Christ uh, feeling like we're just constantly putting out fires in our lives. So, you know, it's like, oh no, pornography addiction. And then, oh no, greed. And then we blow that out. Oh no, gluttony. And then anger. And then laziness. And all the while, we're seeking of what the fullness of what God offers us in Christ as we battle with the idols in us. Jesus offers us his fullness in the midst of Egypt inside of us. But I want to get a little bit more specific. I want to end with an exhortation against disobedience. In our Hebrews 3 reading today, we see that we disobey because we don't believe. And I want to break that down a little bit. Um, I'm discovering as a parent of a young two-year-old, almost two-year-old daughter, that she disobeys me fundamentally because she doesn't really believe me. <laughs> so she doesn't really believe me when I say, don't hit your friend. It's, it's not good for her to fit her friend. The outburst of aggression, right? And the reaction when you, you know, slap your friend in the face. It feels so good in the moment. But if she continues to slap her friends, soon she'll have no friends, right? Um, she doesn't want to obey me because she doesn't really know and she doesn't really believe that I want something greater for her. I want her even now at almost two to discover the joy of friendship. And the anger and the aggression is an idolatrous kidnapper in her life. It promises an emotional release, but in the end, it will leave her lonely. Where in your life do you keep running into disobedience? What unbelief is behind that disobedience? God, in his love, will expose the empty promises of idols. God, in his love for us, 
calls us out of disobedience and into belief in his goodness. Where is disobedience in your life? God wants to reveal your unbelief because God is the source of all that is good and has truer and better things for you. So I want to end exhorting you, brothers and sisters. God has made a mockery of the gods of Egypt. Now God will root out disobedience in the children of Israel. Christ has made a mockery of sin and death. Let the Holy Spirit root out disobedience in you and me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you settle for nothing less than the destruction of our kidnappers. But we admit that we keep turning to them. Lord, expose the unbelief that's the foundation for our disobedience. Help us to remember your goodness and that you have good things for us. Convict us now by your spirit. Amen.